Hello everyone, welcome to the Chicago Justice Show. I really appreciate you being here. My name is Tracy Siska. I'm Executive Director of the Chicago Justice Project. You can find out more about our transparency and accountability work at chicagojustice.org. Uh, visit that site frequently. we got a couple of reports coming out. One is going to definitely break some news in Chicago. Okay, today we feature an interview with Sharon Fairley. She was former... Chief Administrator of the Independent Police Review Authority and the Citizen Office of Police Accountability. She was their first chief there. And we're going to talk, um, basically get some insight into the whole Proud Boy cop issue. So for those that don't know, I mean, there was this issue about a, a, one of the Chicago police officers being a Proud Boy member or affiliate or something. I'm not sure if they hand out cards. But... um. Superintendent Brown said, we're going to root them out. Well, what does that mean? What is the discipline possibilities? There's all kinds of questions around that. We're going to get into it with Sharon. Then we're going to talk about the city limping towards a sort of crisis response, although it certainly seems like they're doing it all wrong. Then we're going to talk about an article from the Southside Weekly on surveilling dissent. And then Lightfoot's Walking Time Bomb Cop, a really good article by Patrick Smith from WBEZ, I think. Um, it's one of the better ones, period, about criminal justice in Chicago I have seen. And if there's time, we'll talk about some national stuff too. Um, but first, if you are watching this show, you can help be a part of it by sponsoring this show. We, we run Monday, Wednesday, Friday, every day at 530 Central. We would like to extend that to being able to stream City Council, Cook County Board, Illinois General Assembly, anytime it deals with justice issues, we'd love to stream it, but we need your help to do it. So please go to chicagojustice.org or drop a um, uh, email to info chicagojustice.org. We can uh, customize a sponsorship plan for you or your business. Okay, so I uh, have a, we'll run a, the Sharon Fairley interview. It's about 20 minutes. It's really interesting. I think people, aldermen, people in the city council, um, the media are not really getting this whole like proud boy cop thing. It's about basically this conversation. While we don't talk about him specifically, is about an officer named Robert Baker who came up in the news as being affiliated or a member or a supporter of the Proud Boys, this white supremacist group that was heavily involved in the insurrection a mile from where I live now. And their superintendent Brown said, we're going to root, root them out. We're going to get them all out. Really? How do you do that? Being a member of an organization like that probably isn't enough to fire them. And I don't know what membership means. So we're going to get into that with Sharon. I don't think it was discussed enough by the media. I don't think the media pushed Brown enough beyond the rhetoric because that's all he gives is rhetoric. There's, he's so shallow. There's nothing behind it. Anything he says most of the time. So I'm going to play the um, interview, and then I'll come back and discuss it. If you're watching us on Twitch, Twitter, Facebook, or YouTube, this is I want this to be interactive. Drop a comment in the chat or a uh, question. I'm happy to answer them. This interview was canned, so for the next 20 minutes, canned. But I'll come back if you have questions about this interview. I'm happy to answer them. All right. I'm going to play the interview, and I'll be back on the other side. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Sharon Fairley, former chief administrator of both the Independent Police Review Authority and the Citizen Office of Police Accountability. She stood up COPA in the transition from uh, IPRA to COPA and also now a law professor at the University of Chicago. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So here's my question. And I um, in early June, there was an officer, and I don't even want to there's an officer, we don't even have to mention his name, Robert Baker, but I don't want to talk about him specifically. It came up in the news that he was supposedly affiliated with the Proud Boys, a white supremacist, overtly white supremacist organization. Um, and they've made the news like crazy since the insurrection. And, you know, he, they suspended him. And then Superintendent Brown came out and said, hey, I'm going to root these people out. And what I didn't understand is I'm, I'm not sure being affiliated with a loosely based organization where you're not a card carrying 
uh, donation giving person. I don't know what that is. And I don't even know if you're a card carrying member of an organization that has white supremacist views, if that's something that is actually they can investigate and then discharge you for. So um, I, the only rule violation I could think of was bringing discredit upon the department. Um, although I'm not sure how you actually connect him completely to the Proud Boys. So I'm going to give you a hypothetical since you and both you have vast experience in this. Someone files a complaint against Officer Smith and says, he's a member of the Proud Boys. And I'll sign an affidavit. Here you go. You got the affidavit. Go get him. What is your response when you get that um, in IPRA or now COPA? Right. So first of all, that kind of case uh, is not exactly within the scope of the jurisdiction of IPRA or COPA because it, unless they made a, a it was, unless it became verbal abuse, right? So IPRA and COPA has its specific jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. So many of these cases, and I believe in Baker's case, it's in being investigated by the Bureau of Internal Affairs. So the question about whether or not someone can be sanctioned for being connected to, to a group like this it really has to be proven that they've broken a departmental policy. Now, you, you pointed to the core one, which is rule two, which is any action or conduct that either brings discredit on the department or is in, inconsistent with the department's values and, and policies. Um, and so that, though, requires a specific action or conduct. It's not just about association. So police officers have First Amendment rights. They have the freedom of speech and they also have freedom of association, but it is not unlimited, right? There are some limitations upon that, on that speech and that association. For example, there is rule 42 that prohibits police officers from kind of this, the frat, anti-fraternizing rule. They can't mm -hmm. hang out with uh, convicted felons, right? Or convicted persons. Um, and so that is an infringement on their freedom of association. But the, the, the two rules that really come up um, in, in this context are rule two, as we've said, which is an action or conduct that discredits uh, the department or rule three, which is a failure to promote the department's values and policies. So that would be sort of like an act by omission, right? And so, for example, where you have um, persons who may have, for example, gone to the January 6th riot, and even though they didn't do, do anything bad themselves, they stood by and watched as others were breaking many, many laws. That could be, for example, the basis for that kind of a violation where you have failed to, to really uh, stand up for the department's values and policies. And so it's it can't be just speech or, or, uh, or association. It has to be speech or association that violates one of those, those rules that you can actually prove up in order to hold someone accountable in that way. Right, so you know, David Brown, we're gonna root them out and like, I don't want, I, I, I would like a country where the Proud Boy types organizations never existed, right? And there were, you know, um, and we got the people out of them and they all thought, you know, white supremacists was bad. Well, one, how would you prove, how would you prove, I guess, how would you prove attack proving membership and is membership enough? Right, so like I say, I'm not sure if necessarily membership is enough unless, for example, you can prove that the group that uh, that they're, they're, they have become a member of is involved in illegal activity or is a group of convicted persons, right? Which would break that specific rule, rule, rule 42 about being associated with convicted persons. Um, or it would put you in a position of observing unlawful conduct that, that you have not, that you have failed to, you know, do something about. So, you know, just pure pure membership in a, in a group that takes certain views that we don't agree with. I certainly don't agree with them, and I certainly don't want to be uh, have a lot of police officers who who share those views because part of the concern is that they, you know, if you sh if you share in those views, then it's really hard for you to fulfill policing responsibilities in an ethical and constitutional way, in my view. And so that's really the the question is, can you gather evidence that shows that for, for, for th that this person by being associated with, th with this particular group 
is essentially not fit for the position, is not fit for office, right? It's they can't possibly be able to fulfill their duties in a, in a fair manner. And so that's the kind of evidence that I think it would require in order to, for example, fire someone, right, for, for belonging to a group like this. Yeah, I, I thought, well, all right, if it becomes public that you're associated with the Proud Boys, it's certainly going to make your ability to testify in court around actions that someone of color did. It's going to, it's certainly going to um, damage your credibility when it comes time to give testimony. I kind of looked at this, I saw this and like, I'm not a fan of the Proud Boys, but I saw this in my, in my, pro the way I process this is we're back to the fifties where this is a thing called, they labeled you a communist. Right, and that made you unfit for certain things. So I just saw Browns like we're going to root them out. I don't understand what that means. How would a police department go root out people that have these views? I'm not sure. Are you going to make them take some kind of survey or test to uncover these interviews? Are you going to put undercover people in the Proud Boys, um, join the Proud Boys, and see if there's other cops involved? I, I've never understood that. Um, do you do you think there are ways? Can you think of ways from all your experience that a police department would? root out officers that have this so that if they're not overtly exposing these things on social media? Well, I mean, I, I don't really know what, you know, what, what activities they undertake in order to enforce. I'm sure there are for example, social media policies, right, in place that, the, mm -hmm. that, they, that they have to follow. And so I don't know what proactive programs that the, the, the department may be implementing in order to enforce those policies. It could be that they are monitoring social media sites for, for posts. That could be, I just, I just don't know. I'm not sure what Superintendent Brown meant when he said root, root out. Um, I guess what I take away from that is that this is an area of concern for him, and he wants to ensure that um, that department members are following the rules and the policies. You know these rules around not posting, uh, you know, communications that um, are inconsistent with the values of the department, because that undermines the respect that the community has for the department. Um, you know, and so that that that's very very problematic, and that's why those rules are in place, right? Is that, is that they recognize that the individual, the conduct of individual officers and how they conduct themselves, even when off duty, can have an impact on how the community views the department. And so that's why their first amendment rights are, are not completely unlimited, right? They don't have as many rights as we do as regular people because of that as an issue. Um, and so it, it could be that they're out there sort of looking for violations of these rules more proactively, um, I, I just don't know. I don't have, have any experience with that. So I always I always thought, although incredibly hard, I think a precursor to all of this was Second City Cop blog. Not so much the blog itself, although the blog obviously wasn't great, but sometimes they actually had legitimate complaints on there that they were able to document. So there's no doubt about that. But that comment section, almost all anonymous, um, it, it definitely set the stage. I'm a mile from uh, the capital in the U in the US Capitol, not the Illinois Capitol. Um, so um, I have an extra uh, special sensitivity for uh, what happened on the 6th of January, considering many of them were out in front of our apartment building with their guns and camo that night, uh, planting the flag of the Proud Boys. Um, but I, I, hopefully Brown is taking this seriously. Hopefully the department is taking this seriously. I think January 6th was a little bit of a wake up call of how much this this type of thinking is embedded into our justice system and our policing. Um, I think, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I think that you're right. I think it was very much a wake up call for, for many of us. And when you see that amongst the hundreds of individuals who have been investigated and many who've been prosecuted for criminal violations associated with the January 6th riot or insurrection, whatever you choose to call it, there were dozens of law enforcement officers and we're talking about law enforcement officers from small cities and all the way to big cities city, uh, departments like the LAPD all the way down to some a small department in West Virginia and 
you know, many of those individuals are now, you know, facing criminal, you know, prosecutions. Um, but it did sort of open our eyes to the extent to which this, um, this, you know, these beliefs are, are held by, you know, a fairly large percentage of the population within law enforcement. And so that that is concerning, because again, it sort of, it uh, undermines our trust in the ability of um, these officers to conduct policing in a way that that's 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 fair and constitutional. That that's really the concern. But when you look at, you know, how these cases are playing out, there and they they are just starting to sort of kind of come to fruition, if you will. We we've just seen uh, last week, for example, the first sentencing for for one of the persons who's charged with a felony uh, on the riot. Um, but we do see. Uh, departments holding their officers accountable. There were a couple of officers for which, from Seattle for which they were uh, sought to be separated from the department based on their participation in January 6th. Now, the, the allegations against those two officers was, was action, not just words, right? That yep. they actually infiltrated within the, the perimeter you know, in a place where they weren't supposed to be. So again, that's action and conduct that's in violation of policies that they're being um, punished for and the, san the sanction is firing. So that department is taking it quite seriously. So we're just starting to see how these cases are playing out um, in real life. Yeah, it's been, I think when January 6th exposed, and I've always had this I've been a, like had these dual thoughts in my head about how much of brutality around policing and bad shootings when they happen were based out of racism that led to them to white cops to fear people of color, especially men of color, and how much was racism that led them to hate, right? And I don't know if I've always thought we could kind of separate those two. Neither one is good. Um, <laughs> I've never fully thought this through, as you're saying, um, but I, I always thought there was a little bit of a difference there. I think what January 6th showed is maybe how widespread, even in a small amount, the hatred in white supremacy is through police departments throughout our country. So, and everyone's saying, well, you're saying 80% of the cops. I'm not saying anywhere near that. But even if it's a small percentage of every department or most departments around the country, that's incredibly that's incredibly dangerous for policing justice in this country. Yeah, I think that you're you're touching on a really important point, Tracy, in that, you know, you know, sometimes we don't know what happens and we see these critical incidents, right? And we we don't understand if they are, are the product of, you know, explicit racism, implicit bias, lack of training. There, there, sometimes it's just really hard to answer that question. Um, and so that's the challenge that. I think we all face in trying to devise police reforms that can address these more cultural issues. And they, you know, obviously these things take time. Um, but in the meantime, we've got to enforce rules, right? If we can't change these attitudes, right? Because sometimes it may be impossible to change someone's attitude, then we've got to have rules in place that can be enforced to prevent the behavior. And that that's what's that's why it's really important, for example, to you know, make sure we're holding police officers accountable in an effective way. And we're enforcing, for example, the duty to intervene when somebody's mm -hmm. going off the rails and, you know, other officers are there just kind of watching. So we, we've got to start really making sure that we're enforcing these rules so we change the behavior before we can, we have a chance to change the attitudes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, um, obviously, we're going to talk just real quick about the Laquan McDonald murder. Jason Van, um, obviously Laquan McDonald in the community were the most people let down by the police accountability system there with Van Dyke being 27 complaints. But Van Dyke, in my opinion, Van Dyke was also let down because not having the ability to intervene when he was racking up all those complaints from all over the city in a way of either correcting the behavior or finding a way to correct the behavior or separating him from the department is an issue, right? Like our police union chief uh, or president has 50 complaints over 23 years. And the department's tried to get rid of him a couple of times. Um, but in, and people you can go look on our website for a report on Cotton Zara. Um, you can see some of the social media posts. There's not a um, minority group on gender, race, ethnicity, you name it, that he does not have very, very strong dislikes for. 
Um, yeah, well, if you read the charges that are before the police board for him right now, it's just a laundry list of Facebook communications that are rants about pretty much a lot of things. Yeah, <laughs> so I was unbelievable. I've been doing this 25 years. I've been in police reform in Chicago since 1996. And even I was like, wow, like mm -hmm. you just, there's so much, um, there's so much hatred in those posts when you can see them. I didn't show them on the show. You can go see them on our website because I want people to be able to read them. Um, they're disgusting, but I, Cotton Zara is not alone on the Chicago Police Department having those feelings. Um, I'm not sure exactly how we root them out. I hope the department's trying. I think it's a lot more, I think people have to understand it's a lot more complicated than people, than they want it to be. Like it's very easy to fire um, Robert Baker for being associated with the Proud Boys. It, it really isn't, it's very complicated. And as being someone who's helped write some of the policy, it's very hard to write policies around these things in ways that make it um, easy to root out um, because they have the right to their beliefs as you said before, it's that you can't make those beliefs translate into actions that violate rules, but um, trying to guess what is in someone's head is basically impossible. Yeah, and it also speaks to how we go about recruiting police officers mm -hmm. as well, right? That that's that's a process that's we're constantly struggling with. You know, I know that the inspector general came out with a report recently about you know the ability to sort of keep uh, candidates of color in in, in the mix in the mm -hmm. process. Um, but that so that that's gonna that's a big challenge as well, and that's that's a place where I think we need to focus a lot of energy too. Right, and I'm not. I 100% agree with you. That report to me was very damning because the 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 you know life not lifefoot but um, Rahm Emanuel and Daly have been talking for years. It's all about recruitment. We can't recruit right. Well, actually, you're getting the applicants of color. You're not just you're just not able to keep them. So mm -hmm. that is less about the community not stepping forward than it is the right. system set up is failing them. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and I, I don't know, and maybe I don't, I, have, I know nothing about the psychological screening they do. And I'm not sure if there's a way to enhance that so you can root out white supremacists. And um, through that process, um, I think that would be something interesting to look at. But I do think recruitment um, is an issue thing. And you know, um, We've always police departments have um, regularly recruited from the military, and as we right. see with January sixth, you know, with uh, the Oath Keepers and uh, the Three Percenters, and how they're all ex-military, um, right? There, there may be some issues with that also. Um, yeah, and I think the challenge there is again, like you can't discriminate in the hiring process against someone who has a certain belief, right? We wouldn't want that, right? Um, but you have to be able to discriminate between those who can hold those beliefs, but still be able to do the job, right? In a fair and equitable manner. And that's what's really so difficult. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's incredibly, we could probably talk six hours on that topic. It's incredibly hard and incredibly complicated. I wish the media would do more nuanced reporting about this. Um, this like, we're just gonna root them out and, and then we go on move the next day about totally different stories and we totally forget about this rather than having the complicated discussion about like, hey, how the hell are we gonna actually do this? Um, I think the people are being sort of changed. Okay, Sharon Fairley, thank you so much. We really appreciate you jumping on to uh, discuss these issues with us. Of course, my pleasure. Okay, so definitely a needed conversation. I think we're getting far too little of it in the media about how we're going to do this and how complicated it is. And I would say, first of all, Sharon Fairley, thank you so much for taking the time to do it. Um, I know she's busy. So that's first. Second of all, it's incredibly complicated, right? And you want to throw labels at people. And it's been done in the past towards the people on the left, right? Communists, you're all communists in the 50s. I don't want to repeat that, but switch it where it's the left just throwing labels on people. If he's somehow affiliated, I'm sure they don't have cards saying I'm an official member of the Proud Boys. Um, if he's somehow affiliated, none of those people have committed crimes uh, or committed felonies or not, are, known, are known felons, and he has friends that are affiliated, I, I just think it's more complicated than people think about how to root them out. 
I don't want anyone affiliated with the Proud Boys or any white supremacist organization, Oath Keepers, Three Percenters, the KKK, whatever. I don't want any of them to be police officers. Trust me. And I'm not, um, I'm not advocating for it. I just think that this, it's, we need a much more nuanced conversation about how we get those people that have those beliefs either out of the police or have significant oversight over them to make sure they are being fair and equitable as they're supposed to be. But the, just the, the the BS from David Brown about, which is going to root him out, it's going to root him out, I think is wrong. And I think that was helped by a media that should not have bought into that crapola because he has no clue how he's going to do it. Sir, what rules are you going to do? What, what violations? What exactly did this officer do that broke the law? I don't understand. I don't think David Brown knows either, to be honest with you. I just think that he had that um, rhetoric ready to go. When he needed. Okay. We're going to take a one minute break, but I just want to remind you quickly, you got questions or comments, drop them in the chat, whatever medium you're watching and whatever platform you're watching us on. And I'm happy to uh, address them in the show. All right. Thank you for being here. We're going to take a one minute break um, and give you some information about our nation program, which you can get at cjpnation.org. You can get more information, get with, uh, contact the group leaders, contact Sydney who runs the whole thing. Um, and then we're going to be back after this break and talk about how the CPD is and the city is slow walking and walking in the wrong direction. It looks like on crisis response in Chicago. We'll be back in one minute. Join a group of engaged and committed individuals advocating for transparency and accountability in the local justice system around the country. Get engaged through crowdsourced research projects digital activism, public policy advocacy, or become a social media ambassador. Our criminal justice system will not reform itself. Communities must demand it. Transparency can be the fuel for justice our local communities need to combat the weaponizing of data by our justice system. Transformation of our justice system cannot occur until we know exactly what they are doing and who they are doing it to. Get involved today. CJP Nation. Okay, we are back. Thank you so much for being here. We're going to go on to our next segment, which is a um, comes from an article in the Chicago Sun Times, and it's about titled "Mental Health Clinicians Will Start Answering Some 911 Calls in Chicago Instead of Cops." Yay! We're moving towards a crisis response. Boo! They're doing it incredibly slowly and possibly going in the wrong direction. Why? What is it about this mayor that she just can't get police reform, meaningful police reform done? What is it? Well, I'm not sure what her love of police is and why that happens, um, but it's holding her back. This is an article from the Sun-Times by David Strut and Tom Shuba, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And I'm using their names today because this article is a piece of crap. Ola, it is very, very bad. They don't have any clue what they're talking about. So Chicago is testing this pilot program, Right. And it sounds interesting, a pilot. Now, you would ask yourself, okay, that sounds good if you don't know nothing about the topic. They're starting. Ladies and gentlemen, a bunch of other cities started last year. Now, you want to know what, what all those cities, well, most if not all of them, have in common? To one extent or another, they're mirror, mirroring or um, replicating in whole what has been done not for two or three years in Eugene, Oregon, in Springfield, Oregon, but for 30 years, not two or three years, two or three decades. Chicago doesn't need a pilot. Go study what's going on in Eugene, what's been going on for since the late 80s. Why do we need a pilot? Haven't they pretty much learned everything you need to know? They know what works. This, to some extent for me, looks like theater. 
it seems to me that Lightfoot got pushed on defund and she's worried about what these other cities are doing and she's worried about re-election. So she's like, we'll start something. We'll make it as meek and weak as possible. You'll notice there's a uh, pattern in what Lightfoot does that way around justice issues. And actually, I think they're doing it the wrong way. Whether it's on purpose, I don't know. But I think Lightfoot is so pro-police that she just can't let go. Okay, so let's take a look at the article. For the first time in Chicago, some 9-11 calls, 911 calls for mental health emergencies won't be answered by police officers, but with mental health professionals paired with paramedics. Right, but I'm going to tell you why that actual sentence, their first meaningful sentence about the program is actually wrong. And I'm going to show you with the stuff they wrote. But anyways, let's get in one pilot program starting this fall, the paradigmic will be placed with a mental health clinician for behavioral health calls. In another, a, paradigmic, a, a paramedic will work with a recovery specialist on calls involving substance abuse. Awesome. That sounds pretty good. I don't, they don't need pilots. We know it works in Eugene. Don't need pilots. Continue. Mental health clinicians will be on hand at 911 Center to monitor situations. But questions remain how well these new responders will be able to de-escalate violence can erupt, that can erupt during such calls. Well, bad reporters, horrible reporters, unbelievably bad reporters, unbelievably biased reporters. This has been going on in Eugene, Oregon for 30 years. 30. How have they done it? Next, what does monitor mean? So they're not taking the calls. They're going to be sitting next to the people. What the hell does monitor mean? You know, you, you, you're a journalist. You could have asked a question. Could have asked a question. Why would you do that? It's much easier just to write the press release stuff. So, ladies and gentlemen, yes, sometimes those calls can get violent. Wouldn't you think the CPD would have those numbers? I mean, they only have $1.7 billion in their budget. PhDs working in their research div division. Why don't they have that number? And sometimes, how about what percentage of calls actually end up with any kind of violence? Seems to see if he should have that. All right, so they get into how Chicago has trained some of their officers on CIT, crisis intervention training, right? Now, we met many years ago. Um, this might be going on 10 or close to 10 years ago with the police department. We used to meet with internal affairs once or twice a year, the head of IPRA twice a year, the superintendent once a year. And I remember internal affairs, the head of internal affairs, I think it was that of internal affairs, telling us they were really proud of having like 1,800 or 1,600 officers out of like 13,000 with CIT training. And we said, well, why don't you just train them all? Well, they don't want to spend the money. That's what it is. It's all about the money. The goal was to have one CIT person available on every shift in every district. The problem is if they're tied up, then you're, you're out of luck. Right? Bef now let's get back to the article. Before the pilots begin, those two different pilots, one for drugs, one for mental health, However, the city will staff two ambulances each with a police officer trained in crisis intervention training, a paramedic, and a mental health clinician. Okay. This is Lightfoot not being able to let go. She is so pro-police. The idea of crisis intervention, the idea of getting a response that doesn't include the police, is because the mere fact that you're putting a cop in a uniform on that scene heightens tensions. It goes up. The cop is the cop being there is the problem. The cop and the gun make things much more difficult. Now you can ask me, how do I know? How do I know that's true? Well, you can go in our archive. I think it was sometime last fall. We interviewed Tim Black and Ebony and Ebony, I don't remember your last name. Tim and Ebony from Cahoots. That's right. Tim used to run the Cahoots Crisis Intervention people on the street. He now does consulting for the White Bird Clinic that helps set Cahoots up in other cities. And Ebony currently runs them. We know. 
They know what works. They've been doing it 30 years. The police, not that those individual officers necessarily, but just showing up with a badge, a gun, and a uniform is a problem on many of those calls. It just is. And then you put in all the context with Chicago with race issues and police violence and stuff. It just, it's stupid. But Lightfoot can't let go of the police. She loves them. Other aspects of the, we're back at the article, other aspects of the plan include health clinicians staffing the 911 center to respond to some calls by phone, eliminating the need for police to respond, Heaton said. The program should begin in October. Cool if they can do that. I wonder where else now, see if we had a reporter worth a shit in this town, these two aren't, where else have they done mental health response by, through the 911 center over the phone? And how has that worked? How successful has it been? Seems like they didn't ask those questions either. What questions did they ask? I continue. The only options now are the ER or the lockup, Heaton said. But in this pilot, they'll bring you to a center, to the center, help stabilize you and connect you with follow-up resources. Aha. Here's the problem, ladies and gentlemen. And I had the same thought, I will tell you, until we dealt with Tim Black and Ebony. Had the same thought. How does Cahoots run? And Cahoots is like crisis assistance, crisis assistance helping out on the street. Their mantra is, and always has been, least intervention possible. That's right. So there's this idea, was it written up in the Atlantic article, and it really wasn't right, that they scoop these people up most of the time and take them to some service. Housing, um, employment, drugs, whatever. It doesn't mean that they don't ever do that. They just don't routinely do that. That is just not something that's done routinely. Most of the time, the vast majority of their calls are handled on the street where the person is. That's the goal. Least intervention possible. They don't want to pick people up. They don't want to take them anywhere. They will, if they need, if need be, they will do it. They said um, the, on the show, the, like the vast majority of cases can be, when they're out on calls, resolved by giving the person some food, uh, giving them a pair of shoes, socks, things like that. It isn't about taking them to centers. This is a wrong way of thinking about it. I'll admit it, that's the way I thought about it until I researched it. Why the hell isn't the city researching it? Okay. Now, if you're thinking, hey, wait a minute. We haven't heard from anyone at Cahoots. They've only been doing this 30 years. They're probably in the article, right? Nope. Why would they do their job? How hard it was it to call? I mean, I got I had a little crap, sh you know, social media show, and I got them on. And by the way, Tim Black from Coots has been in Chicago, both talking to Alderman uh, Rodriguez and the crime lab, I think before the pandemic. I continue with the article. Stuart Butler, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute who, was, who has written about crisis intervention, said the question remains how mental health workers can de-escalate dangerous calls. I agree. The problem is the vast majority of calls that they should be taking cops away are not dangerous. That's just a fact. That's a reality. People are missing it. They think it's about these crisis responders responding to violent calls instead of the police. And while that you're talking about like someone in real mental health crisis, that's a small amount. It's not like it doesn't happen, but it's a really small amount of what the cause or uh, Cahoots response actually responds to. I continue. People are not sure quite how to structure these teams, and they're not sure how much responsibility the mental health professionals should have to de-escalate a potentially violent situation. How much backup they need. Really? So you're saying Cahoots doesn't know. They've only been doing it 30 years. I think they would have figured that out. Who knows? These idiots didn't ask that question. Or they didn't write the answer in. I mean, it's a horrible article about a very important topic. 
why not just do an interview with the people from Coots and say, why aren't you doing it this way, Chicago Review? And as far as I know, as far as it's several months old now, the show, at that point, he had not talked to they had White Bird had not, and Coots had not heard anything from the mayor's office. So it's a, it's a, generally they're starting at a false premise from the start, in my opinion. They could very easily learn from what Cahoots did and get this up and running in much quicker, much larger. The reality is the mayor does not want to pay for it. She doesn't want to defund the police and she doesn't want to take money from the TIF program to pay for this. She's going to slow roll this as long as humanly possible. She doesn't have to take money away from the rich white people she subsidizes or the cops. That's why you're getting this slow, right? Now, Cahoots is mentioned at the bottom of the article. The bottom, it's buried, and they don't quote anyone from it. It's a horseshit article. Really, really bad. Um, they simply don't know what the hell they're talking about. This is, they got a couple quotes from a guy at Brookings, and they got this mental health specialist. The vast majority of calls these people show up to have nothing to do with um, a real crisis situation where someone has a turn of being violent. And then the reality is, this is what people don't understand. There are in cahoots in certain situations where there's a co-response, both the police and cahoots will show up. It just turns out the vast majority of calls that cahoots actually shows up to, they don't need a police response whatsoever. It's just the way it goes. Okay, we're going to move on to our third segment. It's an article by Southside Weekly, and i got to tell you, a lot of their stuff, it's like, there's something good in it, and then it just fails to deliver. By the end, you're like, wow, I just, there's stuff missing. So, Surveilling Dissent is the title of the article. How CPD used the city's gun violence prevention center to monitor demonstrations last summer. All right. Who's surprised? Ladies and gentlemen, Every resource the police department had last summer during the unrest and all those protests a year ago, they were throwing at it. No doubt about it. They were doing it. They were throwing it at it. There's just no way. Um, so are you surprised? You shouldn't be. One of the hypocrisies of the right on this specific issue is that they're all for a restraining government, Right? But they never want to restrain the police. I mean, is there ever a more telling thing than the right? You want to res the right want to restrain government, everything but the police. I mean, that's about as telling as you can that the police are not there to oversee them. So, so this article is about these gun violence prevention centers what they were called some summer operation centers that Brown instituted Memorial Day 2020. <laughs> and supposedly the, it had a singular focus, reducing murders and, and shootings over the summer. Not after everything that happened, no way. So let's see what the article says. But internal documents obtained through the Freedom of Information Act Requests show that almost immediately after the SOC's summer operation centers going on gun crimes, SOC's creation with the onset of citywide protests against racism and the police murder of George Floyd, the police department began using the Violence Prevention Center to monitor and share intelligence about political demonstrations. The police continued to use the SOC to surveil political organization through the summer and fall, even going so far as to quietly add protest monitoring to the center's stated mission. Yeah, it's not good, but I don't, I don't see, like, I, I, I see the smoke, I just don't see the fire. All right, I mean, the police department is in the fusion center, but the FBI and all the alphabet agencies in there, every state's got them, some states have a couple, I think Illinois has a couple, one is Chicago has one, where they're all sharing intelligence, social media, everything. So the CPD was getting it anyways. I just don't, I don't know. 
Function creep on these things is guaranteed 100%. It'll never stay where you want it to stay. When you give policing and like the alphabet agencies, you give them this power, it is automatically, automatically going to be used at some point for nefarious purposes. It was not designed to use. It's 100%. So, so to achieve the fact that they were spying on agencies, SOC briefings reviewed internal intel on recent shootings and planned violence suppression. Missions that blanketed target areas with surveillance technology, such as license plate readers don't work, gunshot sensors and thousands of video cameras, as well as sending surges of CPD personnel and police cruisers with flashing lights into strategic locations across the south and west sides. We see how well that worked, right? Didn't work. That was what the, the summer operation centers were doing. Did not work. Most of that tech, I mean, license plate readers work, but they're not really there for what they're, they're not a gun balance prevention strategy. Um, that is a scoop anyone you can up for any kind of warrant practice or find the occasional um, carjacked or stolen car. And no, well, storming in DC, hope you don't have to hear that thunder, but in case you do, that's what's happening. In the week following the May 30th rebellions, uh, you, you know the politics of the outlet. The SOC continued to coordinate surveillance of political activities alongside its violence prevention mission. Inter internal documents show that starting at an evening briefing on June 13th and subsequent meetings that summer, the center's mission was now described as coordinating city resources to monitor protests in addition to the continued mission to reduce violence during the summer months. I get it. But uh, this seems much about n nothing. I know you caught them and they secretly changed it to, you know, watching the protests and stuff. And but of 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 the surveillance they were doing on people between the city and the state and the feds and all the technology, this seems incredibly minor to me. They're scooping up our calls, all our emails. They're vacuuming all that up. It's getting shared through the fusion center. Drones, cell site simulators, grabbing all our emails. I don't understand this. I, I just can't get the outrage that it wants me to get from this. Of course, when the city goes that crazy with the unrest and the looting and the mass protests, every asset they got is going to be deployed to that. That's just the way it goes. So... Yeah, they're they're right. They got the documents. They're right. I just I just don't see that they're there. I don't see the fire. Um, I think it'd have been interesting if they got more about the intelligence that the feds, the DEA, the FBI, and them were sharing with the CPD through the Fusion Center, and deploying all kinds of surveillance technologies um, in Chicago and cities around the country. I I just. I know I'm supposed to be outraged by it. I just I can't I just can't drum it. I just can't drum it up. Um, and maybe it's because I I've read countless books and articles and academic research on the surveillance police departments do that I'm just not there. Maybe for just a general audience that worked, that is something. Um, it just isn't for me. I'm sorry. Um, I think it started out okay, but it kind of fizzled. All smoke, not a lot of fire there. All right. Segment four, BEZ article. And this is a really, really good article. I've had issues with most of the journalists that cover crime and justice in Chicago, as you know, if you watch the show or listen to the pod. But this is, this is a really good article. So the title is, What Happened After Lightfoot Called Chicago Cop a Walking Time Bomb? Not much. This is from Patrick Smith at BEZ. It's a very very good article. Now, the story is about a cop named Jason, Jason, Joshua Perkis. Now, for a little context, remember everything you hear. He's a field training officer, what's called an FTO. He trains other cops that come out of the academy. Okay. 
shows you just how limited the police accountability system here. Here's the article. On July 21st last year, Chicago Mayor Lightfoot sent an email to some of her highest-ranking staffers about a veteran Chicago police officer named Joshua Perkis, who, she said, sounded like a walking time bomb. You can hear that thunder with a badge and a gun. Lightfoot was flagging a WBZ story from the previous day outlining Perkis's history of social media posts that had prompted a Cook County judge to call the officer frightening. A judgment Lightfoot echoed in her email. Now, all of that sets off a bunch of emails back and forth, right? In fact, despite the rare public admonishment by a sitting judge and the mayor's obvious alarm, Perkis only received a one-day suspension for social media posts like work, hustle, kill, choose your victims carefully, and honesty is not always the best policy. Yes, that's what we want from a police officer. Meanwhile, police records show a second investigation apparently prompted by WB's reporting is still unfinished nearly one year later. That despite the fact the comments being investigated are contained in public social media posts and oh, as the storm comes crashing down around us and have been in the city's possession since 2009. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. You have a... Sorry, one minute. Thank you. Um, the county system's broke. Why does it take a year to do this? Uh, porches getting destroyed by the rain and the thunderstorm. And, okay, why does it take a year to investigate him? Two days after Lightfoot sent her email, Tamika Puckett, who was then the city's chief risk officer, appeared an informal memorandum on Lightfoot for Lightfoot on Perkis, writing to, to the mayor that Perkis has been investigated for misconduct 44 times during his 17-year career with the CPD. That's more than 98% of officers, according to the Citizen Police Data Project. 44 over 17 years. In the next six years, he's got, God, it's pouring. Um, in the next six years, he can rack up, he's got six years to rack up six more and tie his Union boss, FOP President John Contanzara. And here's in the memo. In totality, all the investigations were procedural and operational in nature. Puckett wrote, Bureau of Internal Affairs confirmed that one of the investigators around aroused, the, aroused from allegations of excessive force and other civil rights violations. Yep. Broken. Broken. Okay. I'm going to do this on Wednesday, actually, because it is storming here like crazy. And I don't want it to screw up all the noise, and we may lose power soon. Okay. Um, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Sorry about the weather interrupting the ending of the show. Remember, uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 5.30. Also, cjpnation.org. We have a meeting coming up on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Central. If you want to be at that meeting and get more information about all the work we do, cjpnation.org or drop us an email at infoshicagojustice.org. Okay. Thank you, everyone. I will see you on Wednesday.